this morning. So I invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Mark. Uh, we're in chapter 13 once again, uh, and this morning in verses 14 through 23. Uh, our reference tonight, we're going to be studying heaven and uh, some of the things that we're going to be doing. And, and we'll be talking about uh, technology, thinking about how much uh, the, the human brain is able to, uh, to create and, and build and design now, how much more will we be able to do uh, when we are in heaven and free from the curse of sin, how much smarter we'll be and how much more uh, technology we'll invent. But uh, we're really making a lot of advances as far as technology is concerned. And one of the things that uh, has been invented lately is smartphones. Most of us uh, own smartphones. If you don't own a smartphone, you can call it a dumb phone. And uh, sometimes it's better to have a dumb phone. They're, they're uh, a lot too easier to operate. But anyway, one of the things smartphones can do now is that you can talk to it. And you can tell it uh, some things and ask it to call a certain individual that's on your contact list, or you can tell it uh, play such and such song that may be on your phone, or uh, you can ask it for directions, and you can talk to your phone and it can talk back to you. It's pretty amazing. And, and I've been told that uh, over time your phone will learn your own voice, uh, your accent and different nuances and the way that you talk. And it uses something called voice recognition algorithms. And I have no idea what that is or what that means. And I'm not even good at figuring out percentages, as you all saw yesterday at our Sunday school teachers meeting. But anyway, uh, technology allows our phones to uh, listen to us. And the more you talk to your phone, the more it recognizes your voice and the easier it is for it to obey and do what you ask it to do. But along the same lines, other people's voices are not as easily recognized by your phone. Uh, for example, I can give my kids my phone and they'll try to talk to it and all kinds of hilarity will ensue because it does not recognize their voice. It causes a lot of confusion. It reminds me of this passage of Scripture in John chapter 10 where Jesus says this about his followers. He says in verse 1 through 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. What that means for us as followers of Jesus, we need to become so accustomed to the voice of Jesus, it's easier for us to recognize his voice and follow him whenever he speaks to us. Today in this passage of Scripture, we're going to learn just that. And it's this, in times of great distress, it's important that you listen for and obey the voice of your Savior. Because when things are going wrong and you're under a great deal of distress, you can hear sometimes a lot of different voices telling you, go this way, go that way, this is right, this is wrong. There's no such thing as right or wrong. You hear all kinds of different voices, and when you're under distress, it's easily uh, a thing for you to be led astray. So you need to listen for, be, be accustomed to, listen for and obey the voice of your Savior. I want you to stand, if you're able to, this morning. Out of reverence and respect for the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we are in Mark 13, starting at verse 14, and 
Mark writes these following words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come with reverence and respect before your word today. As we read these words, we do believe they are God-breathed. And Lord, if they originate from you, they carry your authority and your trustworthiness and your power. So, Father, we submit to your word today and pray that you will open our ears that we may hear and open our hearts we might receive. Whatever it is that you would have us to understand, I pray that we would grasp it. Whatever it is that you would have us to do, I pray that by your Spirit we would obey. Holy Spirit, have your way with us today. Let the desired outcome and the desire of your will be accomplished through your word in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we are working our way through Mark's Gospel. We are still in chapter 13, which I've said before is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's because we see in verse 3 that Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and he is teaching these things privately to four of his disciples. And in this chapter, Jesus has already predicted that the temple was going to be destroyed one day. And his disciples, they were freaking out about this. Because to them, the temple represented God's presence and God's favor with his people. And somehow, if the temple would be destroyed, then, then, then the whole world would be turned upside down. And so they were asking Jesus, you know, when is this going to happen? And, and, and what kind of a sign can we be watching for that will show us that this is about to occur? And so Jesus, already through verse 3 through verse 13, has told the disciples, now these are some things that are going to happen, and don't freak out because it's not the end yet. He talks about there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, there's going to be earthquakes and famines, there's going to be persecution against believers and, and family members turning on you because of the gospel. And Jesus says, don't let those things freak you out because these are going to happen. It's not yet the end, it's just the beginning of the birth pangs. Then he comes to verse 14 and he says this, but when you see. So in other words, he talked about in verse 7, he says, when you hear these things, it's not the end. He says, but when you see. They wanted a sign and Jesus said, you're going to hear about all these other things, but when you see this one thing. And so what they were asking for, Jesus is about to unfold that for them. But for us as readers of the scripture there is a, a little bit of an issue uh, 
and trying to understand what he's saying here. So first of all, in verse 14, we need to beware the problematic verse. The problematic verse. There's a great deal of uncertainty how to interpret verse 14. What exactly does Jesus mean by this thing he calls the abomination of desolation? Well, if we take those two words, abomination means anything that is repulsive to God. And desolation, something that's deserted, something that's been abandoned. And so Jesus says there is going to be something so sacrilegious that it's going to cause God to abandon the temple. And so they're looking for that sign, and Jesus is saying to them, the sign you're seeking is this, the abomination of desolation. So how do we interpret verse 14? Jesus says, when you see this, and then Mark adds in this, little bit uh, of an insert there let the reader understand so that wasn't Jesus saying that part that would sound kind of weird wouldn't it Jesus is saying you know when you see the abomination of desolation at the tongue twister Jesus is saying that and then he kind of says now let the reader understand and then he goes on that you know obviously Mark is inserting that comment because he believes that what Jesus is saying applies not only to that audience that Jesus was talking to the disciples but there's also something in this that Mark thinks the reader of what he is writing needs to understand. So that's a little bit of a key for us there, that what's going on there has implications perhaps beyond what Jesus is saying directly to his disciples. So we said early on in our study of thirteen, chapter 13, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, there is one thing that you've got to think on, and it is context context is key remember that so if we think of the context of what's going here perhaps that would help us understand what Jesus means by this uh, weird statement to us first of all there is an historical context historical how would the disciples understand that statement by Jesus or perhaps we can think of a cultural context Jesus says abomination of desolation to us that sounds weird what would his disciples, his immediate audience, what would they have thought about that? And so it's interesting for us to think about it that way because this is an Old Testament term, an Old Testament phrase. And, and, and the disciples, being good Jews, they would have been familiar with the Old Testament. And immediately their minds would have been drawn to the book of Daniel. Because in Daniel, there are three different times where Daniel's prophesying about the future, the rise and fall of kingdoms throughout human history, Daniel mentions this weird phrase, the abomination of desolation. He does so in chapter 9, verse 27. Again, in chapter 11, verse 31. And he says, Their forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. And then he refers to that again in chapter 12, verse 11. So what does Daniel mean when he's talking about that? He's talking about these kingdoms that are going to come and go throughout human history. Well, it just so happens about 400 years after Daniel writes, there is this fellow by the name of Antiochus IV. He is a ruler of Syria. And in the year 168 B.C., Antiochus conquers Jerusalem. He comes inside the temple, and of all things that he does, he sets up a statue of Zeus, the Greek god, within the holy place 
And then he sacrifices a pig, which is the, the most unclean of all animals to the Jews. Antiochus sacrifices a pig and splatters its blood all over the temple. So this infuriates the Jews so much so that they rise up and they revolt against him. There's something called the Maccabean Revolt. And through that, they, they celebrate what we now hear and know as Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. And so for Jesus talking to the disciples, and he says, abomination of desolation, immediately they think of, oh yeah, we studied that guy a couple hundred years ago. This fellow came into the sanctuary of the temple and, and he profaned it. So much so that the Jews rose up and they fought against him. And it was a great uh, nationalistic, patriotic thing for them to remember. And then Jesus tells them, now, when you see something like this happen again, run. The last time it happened and we rose up and we fought and, and we were victorious. And Jesus says, well, the next time it happens, run. And so that's immediately what his disciples would have thought about this. And sure enough, within a few decades, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. But right before it was, there were a group of Jews known as the Zealots. They conquered the temple. They went in and they kicked out all the priests and, and they set up for themselves their own high priest and dressed him in the high priestly garb, even though he wasn't a descendant of Aaron as the priests were supposed to be. And they began offering sacrifices and things even though they were not permitted. So some believe that's what Jesus meant. This false high priest comes in and begins to act like a real high priest. And then three years later, the temple is destroyed by the Romans. So historical context. Then also think about this, the grammatical context. There's anything about what Jesus is saying in this verse that might help us understand. Well, we see this when the abomination of desolation is standing where it should not be. Now, we, some people say, well, maybe he's referring to an event. Maybe some kind of event's going to happen and it's going to trigger this major catastrophe. Well, where grammatical studies come in that, that are very helpful, the word standing there is a masculine verb, which means it's going to be a person and not an event or a, a happening an occurrence, there is literally going to be a person who desecrates the holy place. So that's helpful for us as well. But then the third context we need to focus on is, is what we call the eschatological context. That's a big word, and, and you say, what in the world does that mean? How do you spell it? It's on the board. I'm glad you asked. What does it mean? Eschaton in Greek means the end finality so the study of the end times is what we know as eschatology now how might that be helpful in interpreting what Jesus is saying here well we have a verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 and 4 where Paul is talking about the end times and he's making reference to an individual that we sometimes know as the antichrist and Paul says this, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, the, the falling away from the faith, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 
And so what Jesus is talking about here that is about to be fulfilled in 70 A.D., some believe that Jesus has not only that meaning in mind, but something even beyond that. Maybe Jesus is giving us a little bit of a reference to the end of days. So there is a double meaning in what Jesus is saying. What's going to happen in 70 A.D.? The temple's going to be destroyed. That's what the disciples were asking. But in some ways, Jesus is saying, now what's going to happen with the destruction of the temple? It's not the end of the world. But there is going to come an end one day. So maybe Jesus is starting to allude to that fact in teaching his disciples. One of the mistakes that interpreters make when they come to this verse is they immediately jump to end times. And in fact, when they study chapter 13, they, they automatically think, well, this whole chapter, Jesus is predicting the end times. As if that's all he's doing. They forget the historical context. He's talking to four Jewish men they were asking him specifically about the fall of the temple. We can't forget that. But then the other mistake some interpreters make is not only do they jump straight to the end times, there are other interpreters that completely ignore that aspect of it and say all that's going on in this chapter is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. The problem is there is too much other language and too much other terminology that's being used to completely shut that door. I think the best solution to interpret is somewhere in the middle. Jesus is dealing with a specific event that was about to happen in 70 AD and somehow that event was going to foreshadow what will happen in the end times. So with all that context we come to the end of verse 14 we see a practical command. Jesus says when you see this, all who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, head for the hills. You know, turn tail and run. In the past you stood up and revolted. This time, don't try it. Don't try it. Some people say, well, Jesus is talking about the Antichrist here, the end of days and things. What is the abomination of desolation? It's very unclear what Jesus is saying here. And I believe the lack of clarity is Jesus basically saying to us, you will know it when you see it. Because he says, when you see this abomination of desolation, when it so happens that you see this terrible profanity happen, then you're going to know that's going to be your sign. You need to be watching. That's what he says over and over this whole chapter. Remember, beware, be on guard, stay alert, keep watching. He wants them to focus, not so much on the future, but Jesus predicting the future so that they would be aware in the present. So this is going to happen, and when it does, you will see it. And if you're watching and if you're alert, then you're going to know. I don't think it does us a lot of good to try to predict, oh, the Antichrist, it's, it, maybe it's Hitler, maybe it's Mao Zedong, you know, maybe it's, some people say it's the Pope, and, and, and you, you name all these other figures throughout history that people have tried to say, this is the Antichrist, this is the And Jesus is saying, when it happens, when you see it, if you're alert, you will catch it. 
And that's your key to do what I tell you to do. Don't try to stand up. Get out of Dodge because judgment is about to rain down on that individual and in that place. A practical command. One of the things that sports teams will do that sometimes makes them successful is they'll watch game film. So what they'll do is you get ready to play another team, you watch some film of previous games that those teams have played because that gives you an idea of some of the plays they run, some of their strengths, some of their weaknesses. And the idea is that you watch enough game, watch enough game film, you'll be better prepared when you step onto the court or on the field. Now, our basketball coach at Kentucky is not big on game film because he says if we do what we're supposed to do, it don't matter what the other team does. And some people argue, well, maybe if you'd watched a little more game film about Wisconsin, maybe the outcome would have been different back in April. I'm a little bitter about that, can't you tell? But anyway, perhaps what Jesus is doing is talking about the fall of Jerusalem and the events that he's about to describe in some way is game film for the last days that what's going to happen in Jerusalem and those events that trigger that is somehow important for us to pay attention to because it's going to happen on an even bigger scale at a later date. Foretelling the future to bring about present obedience. So beware of the problematic verse. But then we need to beware of the pessimistic view. Jesus talks about in verses 15 through 20, there is going to be a lot of bad things happening. It will literally be hell on earth. To those who are in that context, when Jerusalem falls, it's going to be terrible. But then we also think about, well, the end time scenario. It's going to be even worse. So what we need to understand is distress can damage your faith in God. And you can develop a pessimistic view of, of your situation when things go wrong and things go bad. And Jesus says we need to beware of that. We talked about how bad things are going to get. He talks about the urgency of the moment in verse 15 and 16. He says, whoever's on the housetop, don't go down and get anything. Whoever's out in the field, don't turn back and get your coat. So in other words, it's going to be happening so quick that you need to immediately obey Jesus. He says in the situation, separate yourself from that place separate yourself from that abomination get away Jesus says and do it quickly don't drag your feet don't hang around urgency of the moment he talks about the intensity of the moment verse 17 and 18 he says woe to those who are pregnant those who are nursing babies he talks about the extra burden of trying to flee will be on those who are most vulnerable and he talks about also the weather. Pray that it does not happen in the winter. The winter in Palestine, a lot of rain, a lot of dried up creek beds begin to fill and begin to flood. And it would be very hard to try to flee to the mountains if you're vulnerable, if your health is poor, if the weather's bad, it's going to be very hard to flee. And Jesus says in that moment. So talked about the different contexts historically and in times I believe he's dealing with the historical context there because he says those who are in Judea flee. Now if he's talking about the end times, what's, we're not in Judea. So we just don't have to do nothing. Obviously he's dealing with that immediate situation, but somehow that lends some understanding to the end times. 
But when things go bad and when we are tempted to be pessimistic in our view of the world, remember the sovereignty of God in that moment. Even in times of distress, in the hardest tribulation of all times, remember the sovereignty of God in that moment. Verse 19, he says, For those will be days, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will. So he says, For those in that situation, Jerusalem is falling. To them, it seems from their point of view, this is the worst thing of all times because they did not listen and flee now they themselves are facing and feeling the wrath of God's judgment and he says in verse 20 unless the Lord had shortened those days no life would be saved or spared for those who had kids that went back to school this week or teachers very grateful it wasn't a full week of school because you think if God had not shortened those days none of us would be spared. It's, it's so bad sometimes trying to get back in to school. But what God is saying, what Jesus is saying to us about God is that He's still in control. Look at some of the redundant language in verse 19. He says, Since the beginning of the creation which God created. Sounds kind of redundant. He's emphasizing something. God is still the Creator. He says, unless the Lord had shortened those days, it's up to God to determine when those days are and how long those days run. From our point of view, the world is falling apart. But God is still the creator. God is still on his throne. He is in control. And no matter how much distress we are under, you cannot forget that. Don't lose sight of that fact. But not only do we see the mercy or the sovereignty of God, we see the mercy of God in the moment. Not only is He still in control, He still loves His children. Because Jesus said, unless the Lord, and again, the Master, God is in control, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom He chose. Again, redundant language there. The elect, that's exactly what it means, those whom God chooses. The elect whom he chose. Redundancy. It's a point he's making. God's in control. God loves his people. He is not going to abandon those who belong to him. No matter how much suffering, no matter how much distress, how hard the tribulation he still loves His people. He's not turned His back on you. God's grace shines brightest against the backdrop of God's judgment. I don't know where I got that from. It's too good to have originated from me. God's grace shines brightest against the backdrop of God's judgment. In this fall of Jerusalem, God's judgment was against the Jewish nation for rejecting Jesus as Messiah. In the end times, God's judgment is going to be poured out on the world for rejecting God's Son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. 
And in the midst of all that judgment and destruction, God saves His people. God is glorified through His mercy in the midst of judgment. Even though we all deserve judgment, we have all sinned against God, we all deserve hell. But God spares His own even in the midst of the hardest tribulation this world will ever see. Song lyric that's on the radio now from Casting Crowns. Your world's not falling apart. It's falling into place. I'm on the throne. Stop holding on and be held. In the midst of our greatest distresses, we are sometimes tempted to have a pessimistic view of our situation and maybe even of God. But in the hardest times of distress... Your world's not falling apart. It's falling into place. God's in control. He's working all things for the good of those He loves and who are called according to His purpose. So stop holding on and be held. God's in control. God's got this. Don't be overly pessimistic about your distress. Finally, we need to beware the prophetic voices. We need to learn to distinguish the voice of truth. As I said on the outset, there's a lot of voices that come at us. And Jesus even predicts this in chapter 13. He says, If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ. Behold, He is there. Don't believe Him. He talks about the reality, the presence of deceivers. He says, For false Christ and false prophets will arise. It's going to happen. Before the fall of Jerusalem, there will be false Saviors and false prophets saying, hey, God wants us to rise up and fight the Romans. When Jesus already said, flee. There'll be false Christs and false saviors, false prophets saying, I've got a word from God. God's telling us, let's not flee the temple, let's run into the temple. And let's fight. He says, false Christs, false prophets, the presence of deceivers, there will always be those who try to lead us astray. He says, in the end, it's going to be even worse. He predicts this. He talks about the power of deceivers in verse 22. He says, they're going to arise, they will show signs and wonders, perhaps even miraculous things, supernatural powers they're going to display. And people are going to freak out and say, wow, if this guy can do that, I need to follow him. But never mind the fact that what this guy is saying is the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Never mind the fact that what this guy is doing is opposed to what the Bible says. Jesus talks about the power of these deceivers, how they will captivate their audience. He talks about the purpose of deceivers in verse 22. He says they're going to arise, they're going to show signs and wonders, and they're going to do this in order to their purpose, their reason for rising up and showing these signs and wonders, in order to lead astray. They want not to lead you to salvation. They want to lead you to destruction. They're saying, let's rally together. Let's run to the temple. Let's set up shop. Let's fight this enemy. Jesus is saying, no, get out and run. And the reason they want you to stay, they want your downfall. They will try to convince even the elect, Jesus says, to ignore the warning signs. They'll say, judgment's not coming. You don't need to do anything different. Just, just sit tight. We hear that preached from some pulpits today, don't we? Don't worry about judgment. Don't worry about sin. 
Just love everybody, accept everybody. Do what feels right to you. God's a God of love, a God of forgiveness. Just, just do what you do. Don't worry about this whole judgment thing. And Jesus says there will be false Christs and false prophets that will arise. They're going to say and do some pretty amazing things that sound good and look good. But they do this in order to lead astray. We need to be listening for the voice of truth in the midst of these times. And that shows us the final point here. Our protection from deceivers. Our protection is Christ's trustworthy words. He says in verse 23, But take heed, behold... I have told you everything in advance. And in the Greek language, the you is emphatic there. Behold, you believers, you disciples, you Christians, to you I have spoken. Take heed. Just be on the lookout. Do what I tell you to do. I'm giving you a warning. Behold, look, you all, I have told everything in advance. In advance. The disciples are saying, Lord, give us a sign when these things are going to happen. And Jesus said, here it is. And when it happens, when the world falls apart, here's what I want you to do. Don't listen to all these other false Christs. Focus. Don't let distress come in and, and, and fog your mind. Take heed. Beware. Listen to me. Obey me you're going to be all right. Listen and, and tune in to the voice of truth. You know, sometimes on the radio, you, you try to, and sometimes now it's digital, you don't have to worry about it. Back in the day, you had a knob to turn, and sometimes it was a little fuzzy, and you had to kind of adjust the knob a little bit, turn it to the right or left, so you finally got the pure signal. You need to do that as a Christian. Sometimes you need to reset your dial and turn the knob a little bit so that you are hearing the voice of Jesus loud and clear. And where is the best place that you hear it? It's, it's right here, folks, in this book. That's our protection against deceivers. We need to read the truth, uh, meditate on it, know the truth, and stand for the truth. And when deceivers arise, we're not going to be led astray. We're going to follow this book. Doesn't matter what culture says. Doesn't matter what your best friend says. Doesn't matter what this preacher on TV says. If it's not this, don't follow this is the voice of truth and we need to listen Jesus says I've told you everything in advance why did he do that not to pique our curiosity he told us everything in advance so that when it happens we'll say you know what Jesus was right and if Jesus was right about this he's also right about the cross so I came to die for the sins of the world so that whoever would turn to me would be saved. If he's right about predicting these things, he's also right about the cross. And if we can trust Jesus with end time stuff, you can trust Jesus in the here, in the now. You can give your life to him in complete trust. He's got this. In times of great distress... You must listen for and follow the voice of your Savior. Perhaps you've seen it on the news this week. There was a 45-year-old teacher that died 
at an amusement park in Ohio. And what had happened was he lost his cell phone on the ride and decided afterwards he was going to jump a fence and go into a restricted area. And when, I, when he was in there looking around for his phone, he was struck in the head by the roller coaster and lost his life. Terrible situation. But what this tells us, here was a man that did not follow the warning signs. First of all, when you get on those rides at amusement parks, they tell you, don't get your cell phones out. You're not supposed to have cell phones on a ride, are we, Gina? Because they might, they might fuss at you at the amusement park if you pull your cell phone out, even if you're on the avalanche. But this man ignored that, had his phone out, dropped it. Then he comes up to this fence, got clearly marked with these signs, warning, do not enter, restricted, authorized personnel only, danger. This man ignored all those signs and paid for it the ultimate price with his life. Ignored signs. What this tells us, unheeded warnings are worthless. Jesus is issuing a warning here. When these things go down, I'm warning you in advance because when these things go down, I want you to obey me. I want you to follow me and listen to me. He gives us these warnings. If you do not heed those warnings of Jesus, you will pay for it with the ultimate price. Your life, your soul. Take heed, he says. Behold, voice recognition algorithms. Learn the voice of Jesus. Obey the voice of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your words you've given us, even though some passages like this can be confusing and sometimes we struggle to try to determine what exactly does this mean. We thank you that your word is clear enough that you say to us, you know the future. And you know that things will go from bad to worse. And you know when those things do, the, the, the best steps that we can take are to get into your word, listen for your voice, and obey you. When things fall apart, when distress comes upon us, we can be tempted to think, well, God's lost control or God doesn't care about me. But this passage of Scripture tells us just the opposite. God's still there. He's still in control. And He still loves me. If I will follow Him, if I will trust Him with my life, with my heart, with my soul, with my eternal destiny, even though I am a sinner, even though I deserve the judgment of God because of my sin, Jesus died on the cross to pay for that penalty. And all I've got to do is trust that voice that says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are called to hear, believe, trust. Heavenly Father, if there is someone here today that has heard your voice, I pray that today they would believe your voice and they would trust your voice. 
that when everything falls apart, you will draw us closer to you, draw us near the cross as the prime example that God has a plan, a perfect plan. And that plan is Jesus. Jesus, keep us near your cross. Lord God, during this time of decision, if there are choices that need to be made, if there are lives that need to be transformed, if there is eternal destinies that need to be changed, I pray, God, you would do what only you can do right here, right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like for you to stand as we sing this invitation hymn. In the cross, Jesus keep us near the cross. If the Lord is leading you to respond for salvation, a rededication, to join the fellowship of this church, to be baptized, called in ministry, whatever it is that the Lord may be leading you to do, would you hear, would you obey as we sing today?